Good morning, Trailview. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Today we are in Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful, and he made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their water into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all their vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborns in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribe who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed from dread of them had fa- for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, 
and he gave them the land of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, and they might, that they might keep his statutes and observe his law. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kathy, for reading that marathon. Um, great job. Um, uh, we are in Psalm 105, and like I said earlier when we were praying, my name is Derek, I'm one of the pastors here at and if you're new here, in your chair you would have found this uh, little card right here. If at some point during our worship gathering you wouldn't mind taking a few moments and filling out this card, uh, we'd love to connect with you. Love to share with you, get coffee, maybe uh, have lunch or dinner with you and, and share with you our story. We're a little over a two and a half year old church plant here in the Crowley, South Fort Worth, Burleson area. Uh, and we'd love to hear your story, get to know you, share ours with you, see if Trailview is the right spot for you or your family, answer any questions you may have. Uh, and on the back side is a prayer card. If there's things happening going on in your life that you would like for myself and Pastor Brandon to join, Join you in praying for. We'd love to do so. And the back of that card is a great way for us to hear those things and pray for you in them. And you can do a few things with this card. You can drop it in that black box in the back right over there on that table. You can bring it directly to myself or Pastor Brandon, who's leading worship for us this morning. Uh, or you can use the QR codes that are on the corresponding sides and you can do that uh, digitally. And we'll get it from you in that way. So we'd love for you to connect with us this week um, by filling out that card. So uh, as we dive into Psalm 105, this summer we've been walking through a variety of different psalms, uh, and, and this week we get to Psalm 105, which is a long but a, uh, a story psalm. It's a song that tells a history, uh, 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 specifically about 500 years of history. Uh, and it's meant and intended to, to cause us to remember, to stir our hearts. And so to kind of put it in perspective or give you an illustration, I have uh, one cowboy hat. Uh, I don't know if you have a cowboy hat. Uh, I was not, uh, don't shoot me, I wasn't originally born in, Ar- in Texas, I was born in Arkansas. Um, I know, my, my family sojourned in a land for a long time, um, but we made it here eventually. And uh, so, uh, uh, but, but we, so I grew up in Northwest Arkansas, moved here in high school, um, and uh, about, I want to say eight, eight to ten or so years ago, um, I got my first cowboy hat. Uh, and, and about one or two times a year, I put this cowboy hat on, sometimes by myself in the bathroom, and sometimes I wear it out uh, about very, very rarely. At one time, Brandon uh, and Lauren and Rachel, my wife, uh, and I went out to dinner, and we all dressed up, we all as in Brandon and I dressed up as cowboys. Our wives were a little embarrassed and tried to stick to some form of a Western theme um, just for fun, and uh, we had, there was a purpose in it that was a, just an embarrassment, so we'll move on from the story. Um, but, but every time I put that cowboy hat on, um, it might not seem like a very big deal, but something happens in my heart. Uh, something happens inside of me when I put that cowboy hat on that's significant. And I don't mean that I suddenly stand up straighter and taller and have more confidence or, or, or draw out my words a little longer or, uh, or say y'all or yeehaw more often. That's not what I mean by some transformation that takes place when I put on that cowboy hat. Um, you see, what happens in my heart when I put on that particular cowboy hat is it helps me to or it causes me to remember something. It causes me to remember my grandfather. Because I've never, to this day, purchased the cowboy hat, but my grandfather, who was a cowboy, like rode Broncos, like in the rodeo, um, when he passed away, my grandmother gave me his hat. And so every time I put that hat on, yeah, it's a fun moment, and I, I it's, yeah, it's just a fun moment. I don't know what else to say. I get to be Woody or something for a night. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it stirs something in my heart when I put that hat on. 
It makes my heart and my mind remember his gray leather round-toed cowboy boots that sat by his chair and that he wore everywhere he went. It makes me uh, remember the pearl snap shirts that were like a there's no other option in wardrobe kind of shirt for him. Uh, his old Dodge blue truck that sat in the driveway that I don't think ever actually moved. Uh, his recliner that when we were kids we would uh, sit in when he got up to go get a coffee or, or a snack and he'd come back and fake sit on us or, or scoop us up in his arms and snuggle us in his chair. Uh, makes me think of uh, the seemingly, likely, hours that I would spend as a teenager and then young adult uh, just perusing the seemingly endless collection of antique tools that he had in his shop just arrayed along the walls. Um, and you see, when I put on that hat, it makes me smile. It, it fills my heart with all kinds of emotions. Uh, it makes me think of really, really great things because it causes me to remember my grandfather, to remember his character, to remember his smile, to remember his love, to remember the wave of his hair on the front. It was like an ocean wave of like his gray hair on the front. You see, it engages my heart when I remember it, when I remember him. And the reality is God created us as human beings with the capacity to remember. We're not goldfish that have a very short memory. We have long-term memory. And that's an intended design of God for us to be able to remember things that would then cultivate and stir in us emotions, affections, and all kinds of things inside of us. And God has designed us in such a way to do that that He also has created rhythms and patterns in life for remembering. So much that if you read through or are familiar with the Old Testament, there were rituals. Like the people of Israel had a calendar of festivals and rituals and feasts and all these things that were celebrations of things that God had done in the past. And they did them every single year. Until there were some times when the people who led the nation abandoned, forgot, and neglected God, and they stopped celebrating those festivals. And then a new king would come in and find the word of God and restore those feasts and festivals like Passover and the Feast of Booths, which is all about the wilderness wandering of Israel. And see, God has designed it that way. These feasting and these festivals, these, these yearly temple trips that the people of Israel would take, all the way down to a weekly moment of remembering called the Sabbath. That he gave the people the Sabbath in Genesis. Just to clarify that. He brought a lot of clarity to the Sabbath with the people of Israel and, and still is a blessing to us. God has the Sabbath. A weekly moment where we stop working to remember God doesn't stop working and to remember that God is our provider, not me and my work and my labor every day. It's a moment where we gather together today to be reminded, to sing things that help us remember who God is, how faithful He has been. And you think uh, back generationally, um, Jonathan Lane, our deacon of youth ministry, brought up this last week as he was preaching. Uh, if you think prior to the Gutenberg printing press, it was very hard to find or come by, or, or you had to be in a specific place to have the actual written Word of God, i.e. a synagogue or a temple or something like that. 
And so how did those people remember? How did they carry on the Word of God? How did they hide it in their hearts? How did they rehearse it? How did they remember it? They sang. They sang songs. Lots of songs. The Psalms, to be specific. Among, I'm sure, many new songs from generations and generations and generations, but they, they sang songs. And a few weeks ago, Rachel, my wife, and I were on our way um, back from dinner one night, and we just went down a trip to Memory Lane and put on some bands that we listened to when we were in high school, um, which was now, um, uh, I don't want to do the math, 20-ish, almost less than 20 years ago, 15, 16, something like that years ago. Um, uh, so bands that we listened to anywhere from 15 to 20 years ago, and we put them, thankfully, Apple Music, we can find those things because all the CDs that we kept in our visors or in the big, huge stack in our back seat is gone now. But we were able to find those bands and listen to some of them, and, and we're like headbanging in the car as we drive home from this date night, like singing these songs. Uh, and then a few days later, or yeah, a few days later, uh, we're going somewhere with all of our kids in the car. And we're like, hey, let's introduce them to some of this music. And so it's all, all good music. We're not bad parents. We're not going to tell her. Yeah. It's an, yeah. So anyway, so we, we start playing some of these songs for our kids. And, uh, and they're like looking at us with deep concern in their eyes as their mom and dad are headbanging and reciting every single lyric from these songs that we have not listened to in 15 or 20 years. All that is an example a specific example that God has wired us to be people who remember things and songs are a beautiful example of how we remember things. Here's the deal. As I'm listening to music from when I was in high school, guess what came along with every one of the lyrics that I remembered? The emotions I felt as a teenager. I was like, oh yeah, I remember feeling like this when I used to sing that song in the car. Or when that girl like, didn't like me and I sang this song, it made me feel all these weird emotions. Like, I, like, it does that. Music has a way of helping us to remember, but it not only helps us to remember, it guides us. It guides our minds to consider, to contemplate, to remember, to rehearse, and to feel along the way. And in the same way Psalms do that, and in the same way Psalm 105 did this for the people of Israel and can and should do for us today, despite the fact that we aren't going to sing it, we will consider it like you're reading the lyrics. I don't know what the original melody to this would have sounded like. It wasn't English, so probably very bad if you tried to sing English to it. But nonetheless, this psalm specifically served the people of God in the very same way. For them to remember, to commit to memory. And they would sing this song. And as they sang this song, their hearts would be guided to remember their God. To remember His faithfulness in the past. To remember His promises to be faithful in the future. And along with it would invite feelings of sorrow and grief feelings of uh, gratitude for God's mercy even in their rebellion as a nation. It would invite the complex emotions of betrayal and grief and sorrow and joy and celebration all together. And so this psalm specifically, Psalm 105, is intended to guide us, to guide us to praise the Lord. And specifically to praise the Lord as this psalm recounts about 500 years of history. 
About 500 years of the faithfulness of God. And so look with me in verse 1. Now, verses 1 through 6 start in a uh, posture where the, the song leader uh, is talking to the people who are about to sing. He's talking and singing over and, and exhorting, which means calling them to action, the assembly of people who have gathered to praise the Lord. And he says this in verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Pray, sing praise to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory is His holy, in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servants, children of Jacob, His chosen ones. And this song starts with this exhortation to praise the Lord. To, and He gives us some very interesting and specific things. He says, give thanks. Start in your song with gratitude towards God, to cry out upon, uh, upon His name, to make known, this word actually in, in the Hebrew is to testify, to, to give witness to what God has done, to, to sing, which if we just want to clarify for us, singing is commanded in the Bible. There we go. So after we're done here, we should all be singing. Yeah. So singing is a part of the way that we praise the Lord. He says to seek the Lord. He tells us to rejoice. He tells us to remember that He's instructing us as the people of God how we ought to praise the Lord, to give thanks, to tell of all that He's done, to, to sit around tables and recount the faithfulness and work of God over meals and dinner. That's what Passover was. A long dinner celebration recounting all that God had done. That we should be doing that. To, to when we gathered, because this is written to a group of people. This isn't a like drive along in the car, sing in the shower song. This is a, hey, all of you, sing together. Because when we sing together, when, when I sing, I'm reminding myself of all these things. And when I sing and you're like, man, I don't really want to sing, guess what? I'm telling you something too. And I'm helping remind you in the same form you're helping remind me. Like we're just saying, great is your faithfulness to me, which is an echo of this entire psalm. The great faithfulness of God. To glory and rejoice in Him. To seek the Lord. And to seek Him continually. Not just for a moment, but all the time. And to remember, and remember takes like a pretty big center stage point here because the rest of the psalm is that very thing. Remembering, retelling, testifying, singing, glorying in, giving thanks to and rejoicing in God because of His faithfulness. Because of His faithfulness. His faithfulness to who? Well, he says in verse 6, the offspring of Abraham, the children of Jacob, his chosen ones. And you might go in that moment, well, wait a second, I'm not a Jew. Maybe you are. I don't know. Maybe you don't know. Uh, highly unlikely where we are, uh, but possible. 
So does this have anything to do with us if we aren't Jews? If we aren't the literal offspring of Abraham or children of Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel, which is where Israel gets its name as a country, as a nation, as a people. So this was written to a specific people, calling them to remember some specific things that God had done for this specific people. But before we go and write it off as if this isn't for us, it's important for us to remember that God has grafted us into this family by faith. That those of you who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith have been grafted into the family of God. That although you may not be the literal bloodline of Abraham, you share in this history as family history, as adopted into, grafted into children of God by faith. That we are called His chosen people, His holy nation, His people, in the same form that they were. This specifically is in 1 Peter 2. I'll read this. It's not going to be up on the screen. We've got a lot to go on the screen, so I'll read this for us. It says in 1 Peter 2, and this is to Christians in the first century, not to Israelites in the fourth century BC. It says, But you, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you and I share these same titles and are grafted in by faith to this same family of Abraham. Which means the history that we're about to recount is your faith family history. That you should be stirred at the faithfulness of God to your people by faith. They are your people just as you are theirs. That you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you were not a part of the children of Abraham, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That all that we're about to recount in the history of the people of Israel is intended to stir in us praise to God for all that He has done, for His steadfast love and faithfulness, for His mercy and grace, for His mighty works and wondrous deeds in your family history, in your faith history. And so before we dive into this, just take a moment. Maybe this morning your heart is in a place where you're like, you know, I really just don't feel like praising. Maybe, maybe this exhortation to praise the Lord um, would hit a little better at different seasons and times right now, but right now we maybe are struggling to, to see much to find in life to praise the Lord for. Maybe there's hardship, suffering, pain, hindering you. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's even success. All of which can be things that blind us to clearly see who God is and hinder us to come before Him in praise. And so my hope for us this morning is 
is that as we walk through the rest of this psalm, recounting the history of God's faithfulness over 500 years of history, it would help us, like it did them, to more clearly see the character of our God and His faithfulness. And in that, that the Holy Spirit might connect the dots in God's faithfulness to Israel to His faithfulness to you, where you sit today. So the main thing that we're going to see this morning through this whole rest of the psalm is this. God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps His promises. So let's follow the story arc. Let's follow the story arc from Abraham over this 500 or so years history all the way to the Exodus. It starts in verse 7. And, and just to kind of put this in uh, biblical history, history concept, or context, this is covering verses 7 through 15, Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 35. A lot happens, and a lot happens that he doesn't talk about in these handful of verses. But he does talk about some specific things that I want to recount as we go through this. But as we do this, I want us to remember one thing. Now, the, uh, the language changes a little bit from verse 7 down. Uh, in verses 1 through 6, he's instructing us. The song leader is saying, he's shepherding and guiding us into a specific disposition of praise. And from this point forward, the main character in the entire rest of the psalm is God. That every time, almost every time, there's a few moments where it doesn't, uh, almost every time that it uses the pronoun he, it's referring to God. It's where it's referring to Pharaoh or, or somebody else, but, uh, but most of them refer to God because he's doing what he tells us to do in the beginning. He's remembering the works of the Lord, all that he has done. So he's telling us, he's testifying to all that God has done. And he starts in verse 7 like this, with Abraham uh, all the way down through uh, where it gets to the end of Genesis 35. It says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying that you, or to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for inheritance, when they were in few in number, a little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another place, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. You see, the main character in all of this is God and his faithfulness and his characters on display in this. And it starts at the very beginning with Abraham. And to kind of recount for you briefly the history and story of God's faithfulness to Abraham, it goes like this. Uh, God calls Abraham from the land of Ur, you are, um, that's the word, capital U, lowercase r, in the east, in the Babylonian area, and he tells him, go uh, back of your stuff and go to the land that I will tell you. And so Abraham, and he takes his nephew and all of his stuff, and he heads off to where God would lead him, uh, to this land. Uh, and in this moment, God calls Abraham, and he makes a promise to him. And in that promise, he's making a covenant, a committed relationship with vows to Abraham. And he says in 
Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your own country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then God continues to elaborate more specifically on this covenant in chapter 15 where he says this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give the land from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites and the Kenzites and the Kittimites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. That God promised Abraham when he made this covenant with him that he would do a few things. That he would take this, this married man, Sarai at the time, who had no heir, had no son born to him, and he would make him a great nation. And that he would bless his name and he would become great so that he would be a blessing. And that he would specifically, through Abraham and his family, be a blessing to every family on the earth. And along with that promise, that covenant came, this land, specifically the land that he led him to of all the nations, which I just read, I'm not going to read again, you're welcome, uh, but all of, these, uh, all of these nations, this land was a part of that promise. And so Abraham goes, he trusts the Lord, he goes to that land, he sojourns in it for a while, they're going from nation to nation, they, they end up going to Egypt for a little bit, and, and this psalm, it's really awesome for a few different reasons, but one of them specifically is because he doesn't zone in, which are like, you, you, I'll say you know that person. You may not be that person who loves to watch car wrecks, or not loves to watch them, but maybe you, your eye draws to them, or you watch NASCAR because you want to see the wrecks or whatnot. Uh, I, I, we'll just say your friend who likes to do that, because of course it's not you. Uh, this psalm leaves all of the like human nature garbage out and only talks about God. Because there's some really messed up stuff that happens from Genesis chapter 12 to chapter 35. But this psalm isn't talking about all those things. It's not going, hey, remember, remember Abraham? Remember what he did with his uh, wife's maid? Remember when he lied about his wife when they went to Egypt? No, it doesn't talk about any of those things. It's only talking about the faithfulness of God. Not to the neglect of those, but to zoom in and focus. And so they go down to Egypt for a little bit. God protects them from Pharaoh. They come back to the land. They settle there. Uh, they split with his nephew Lot. He saves Lot from some stuff and all kinds of craziness. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. And, and God's faithful along the way. He promises a child, but then he tries to do it on his own way, not trusting the Lord. And then, and then he does have that child, Isaac, and God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. And, and Abraham trusts the Lord that he would provide a sacrifice for himself. Those are literally the words he tells Isaac, and they go up on the mountain, and God provides the ram stuck in the thicket. Uh, there's the sacrifice, all this prophesying to Jesus in the future, uh, and so on and so on. You see the faithfulness of God to Abraham, his covenant that he made with him, and his covenant that he will remember with Abraham. That God was faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, his son. It's a beautiful story of God's faithfulness of God's faithfulness to bring about His redemptive covenant plan, all the while foreshadowing the cross of Jesus along the way, 
and showing His covenant faithfulness. Reminding us this truth. God is faithful. That when He makes promises, you can take them to the bank. That when God promises something, when He declares something, it is sure and true. No questions, no ifs, ands, or buts. But the psalm doesn't stop with Abraham or with Isaac. It picks up with Jacob and Jacob's kids in verse 16. And it tells of God's faithfulness to Jacob, who gets renamed as Israel, and his kids that move down to Egypt. And it says this in verses 16. When he summoned a famine, can remember, who has the power to summon a famine? Just to clarify, should, should bring some definition to who he is. I can't summon a famine. A famine is when there's no food to eat. I can't summon a famine. You can't summon a famine. Only God can summon a famine. So the he here is God. When God summoned a famine on the land, when God broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. See, to catch us up in the history here, decades later, uh, Jacob, renamed Israel, his sons are all living in the land where Abraham went back to after Egypt. They're kind of sojourning in the area. They've gotten a lot bigger. There's the 60, 70 or so people in the land in, that are in their family now at this point. And they're largely herdsmen. We find this out later when they get to Egypt. Uh, and there's a famine in the land, a long famine, specifically a seven-year famine that, that all the food has dried up and there's none left. And God, it tells us here, is the one who caused said famine or summoned and sent that famine. And he did so, and in so he put them in a place of starvation and desperation and need. But even in that moment of famine and desperation and need, God was faithful to go ahead of them and provide all that they would need. Now we see God's provision, we see God's work and redemption, even in this, because it says of verse 17, He, meaning God, sent a man ahead of them. And that man wasn't just any man. That man was one of Israel, Jacob, slash Jacob, kids, Joseph. And it tells us a little about Joseph, and I'll read this and catch us up and fill in the gaps. It tells us, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until, he had said, until what he had said came to pass. And the word of the Lord tested him. And the king sent and released him, and the ruler of the peoples set him free. He made him lord over his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure, and to teach the elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. So this recounts Genesis 37 through 50. And to kind of fill in the gap, you know, Jacob's one of 12 brothers. Uh, sorry, Joseph's one of 12 brothers, one of uh, Jacob's 12 sons. And Jacob's kind of the favorite. Sorry, I'm just going to call Jacob Israel from now on, because God did that. Joseph was the favorite of Israel's sons. Uh, so much that he gave him this pretty purple coat, or not purple, multicolored coat. Uh, and, 
And his brothers were jealous, and one time he had a vision from the Lord, a prophecy, a dream, that his brothers would all one day bow down to him. And Joseph shares this dream with his brothers, and his brothers get mad, and while they're off in the field, uh, they take Joseph and they throw him in a pit, and then some slave uh, traveling traders come through, and his brothers sell him into slavery. And as far as their knowledge, Joseph is gone forever. He's gone. They take the coat, bloodied up in some animal blood, back to their dad and tell him he died. And they found the coat. And to their knowledge, all that happens from that moment forward is there's a famine in the land and we've got to go find some food. But God was faithful. You see, what God did was He sent Joseph ahead of them in about the most roundabout, undesirable way possible. Anybody signing up to go ahead of someone else in a slave, as a slave? I, I'm not. You see, Joseph was sold into slavery, bought by Potiphar, became uh, uh, the one in charge of all of Potiphar's house, and, and at the same time, Potiphar's wife uh, kind of had a, an eye for Joseph, and so she uh, created a little scandal with him. Um, Joseph was a man of honor who trusted the Lord, refused to uh, have sex with Potiphar's wife, and she claimed that he assaulted her, and Joseph gets thrown into prison. In prison, he interprets the dream of a cupbearer and a baker that are Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker, and tells them, hey, don't forget me, and he gets forgotten. And then Pharaoh has a dream. And that same person whom he interpreted the dream for correctly finally remembers him. And he calls to, and this is what the psalm recounts here. It tells us this in verse 19. What he had said came to pass. And the Lord tested him, all a reference to these dreams that Joseph had. And so Joseph goes to Pharaoh. He interprets the dream. Hey, there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So you need to be prepare for the seven years of famine by preparing for the seven years of uh, plenty and storing it up. And so because of his interpretation, Pharaoh puts him in uh, essentially the same seat as Pharaoh. He has full authority and reign over all of Egypt alongside of Pharaoh, this guy who's not an Egyptian. But here's the crazy part. When we do the math and we connect the dots here, Joseph is 17. We know this because it literally says it. Joseph's 17 when his brothers sell him to slavery. Imagine yourself, maybe you're here today and you're 17 years old. Imagine being a 17-year-old who's sold into slavery, taken to a foreign land, made a slave of somebody else, uh, caught up in a sexual scandal, and then put in prison, neglected and forget about all the while you're there. And now, 13 years later, this isn't like over a summer vacation here, 13 years from when he was sold into slavery, to when he was put in power in Egypt. Thirteen years of suffering, of slavery, of being forgotten, of imprisonment. Not only thirteen years, but it's another nine years till his brothers ever come to Egypt. It's another nine years from when he gets put in power in Egypt till his brothers show up. And the story is a pretty remarkable story of God's faithfulness to Joseph and Israel to bring them provision in a time of famine. 
and in Joseph's faith and trust in the Lord's faithfulness along the way. It takes some remarkable faith and trust in the Lord for Joseph to say some things that he says in the end. See, when Joseph's, favor, when Joseph's brothers come desperate and needy for food to take back to their father and their family, this is what Joseph says to his brothers. He says, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you, his brothers, who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So who does Joseph give credit for his slavery, imprisonment, and position of power in Egypt? God. Who does Joseph, does he blame his brothers, hold them responsible, a grudge and bitterness like those brothers think he probably will? No. Just like Psalm 105 says, God sent him ahead of them. Joseph says, you didn't send me here. God did. And in the same form, once his dad eventually dies, Jacob slash Israel, when he dies in Egypt, his brothers are terrified that Joseph's going to forget his brothers and kill them. And so they come and they bow down before Joseph and say, Behold, your servants, do whatever you want with us. But Joseph says to his brothers, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph, after 22 years of slavery, imprisonment, the Lord's faithfulness to provide for all of the nations in the area through his wisdom, Tells, tells it like it is. It is God at work and divine providence and faithfulness to bring him to Egypt to accomplish this particular purpose that this family would live. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That they would be spared from the famine that God summoned. See, Psalm 105 recounts the history and the story of God's work and his faithfulness to Joseph to provide and to bring the family of Abraham, whom he promised this covenant to, all the way to Egypt. All is an echoing, remembering moment for us to remember this truth. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. But it doesn't stop there. Like I said, this is 500 years of history, and we're in the fourth generation. So, he keeps going. In verse 25... Um, he recounts what happens while they're in Egypt. In verse 24, it says this, And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Literally, what it's saying is God made them multiply into a whole lot of people and made them very strong in number. There was a whole lot of them. But not only did God make Israel, this nation of people, very fruitful to where some number of them in over 2 million people in Egypt at this time, 
But he also, meaning God, turned their hearts to hate his people. Meaning, turned the hearts of the people in Egypt to hate the people of Israel, the Hebrews. And they dealt crafty with his servants. Specifically, all that's a reference to them turning on the people of Israel in Egypt and making them slaves and forcing hard slave labor on them on repeat for years, for generations, to the point to where if you read the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, you see the people of God crying out to God to deliver them. And this psalm recounts that. In verse 26, it says, He, meaning God, sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. And they performed signs among, among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Verse 28, down through, recounts the ten plagues in the Exodus. So if you're familiar with or you want to go read the Exodus, it tells the story of God's delivering the people of Egypt or Israel from Egypt. And he uses uh, these plagues to both judge and deliver, judge Egypt and deliver his people from slavery and captivity. And it says the plagues like this in verse 28. He sent darkness and he made the land dark and they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs and even in the chambers of the king, that even the king's house was not spared from these. He spoke and there came swarms of flies, like God literally just spoke. Sounds like Genesis chapter 1 to me. Uh, He spoke and swarms of flies came and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts throughout their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came and young locusts came without number, which devoured all the vegetation of the land and ate up all the fruits of the ground. He struck down all the firstborn in the land, the firstfruits of all their strength. See, this part of the psalm tells the story of God's deliverance of the people of Egypt, now probably numbering in the two millions, um, and bringing Abraham's family, the people of Israel, out of slavery. Who did all that? God. God redeemed, God delivered them from slavery. God brought them to Egypt. God prospered them and made them great in number and strong. God turned the hearts of Egypt against them. And then God delivered them by powerful, mighty works and miracles, which the beginning of the psalm talks about through these ten plagues. God was faithful to deliver on his promise to make Abraham's family great and to give them the land. And that included the exodus. But his faithfulness didn't stop there at their freedom. God didn't just set them free and then let them kind of roam around wherever they wanted. The psalm continues to tell of the faithfulness of God uh, and his provision. And this is another interesting one. Uh, All of these, like I said earlier, neglect, don't neglect, they intentionally leave out the unfaithfulness, the grumbling, the complaining, the unbelief of the people. and, And it shines a bright light on God's faithfulness. On all that God did. So much that it frames even their time in the wilderness as a time not of their rebellion, which we oftentimes think of, but paints the picture of the time in the wilderness as a time of God's faithful guide and provision. 
that the time of the wilderness, when the people were grumbling and complaining, when they didn't believe and trust the Lord, was a time of God's faithful provision and guidance. Look what it says. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold. Literally, the Egyptians gave them all their wealth. They asked, hey, can we have all your gold and silver? And they were like, yes, please take it and leave. It's literally how the story is told. And Psalm tells it here. Then there was none among his tribe who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. Called it manna. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the land of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. See, when the Lord brought them out of the land of Egypt, he provided for them. He provided for them all the wealth of Egypt in silver and gold. He provided them protection in a cloud covering and guidance in the fire and the cloud. He provided them food to eat in the desert and quail and, and sweet, sweet honey-like bread. And then he provided it for its day. And then on Friday, double, so they didn't have to go pick it up on, Sunday, on Saturday. So much he provided to remember that it was him who provided that if they took some extra, it expired the next day. So that they came to God for his faithful provision. He's the one who made the water flow out of a rock in the desert like a river and turn bitter water into fresh. So much that he brought the people out with joy and singing. In the same way he's exhorting them and us today to remember the faithful provision and guidance of God and his people in the wilderness by singing. That he brought them to the land. That God promised Abraham nearly 500 years before that he would make his nation great. His family would be great. He would have an heir, meaning a son. That he would have the land. And that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he did it. God was faithful to fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham. And in our faith family history, this 500 years and the psalm that recounts it tells of the faithfulness of God. It tells us of God's faithfulness to when He promises something, when He says something is, when He He tells us to do something, promises that it's good. When He leads us or calls us in a direction that it is good and that He will be faithful to see it through. Like I said earlier, you can take the promises of God to the bank because God is faithful. 
And we see the faithfulness of God most clearly in the gospel. That God told us in Genesis 3, He would provide through Eve, the woman, the one who would crush the serpent. That He foreshadows in Isaac on the mountain with Abraham. One, a son who would be born, a baby that would be given who would die as a sacrifice to pay for all sin. The gospel is the most clear picture of God's faithfulness to provide forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who believe. It's an act of God's perfect faithfulness to His children. There's some questions that this brings up. Here's one. Why was God so faithful? Why was God so faithful? Why was God so faithful for 500 years to keep His promise to Abraham? Why was God so faithful to these people? Well, well, firstly, God was faithful because it's in His character to be faithful. And He's incapable of being unfaithful. That God, because of His holiness, His righteousness is self-limiting. He cannot sin, and therefore he cannot act in unfaithfulness, which means when he says something, he doesn't turn back on his word. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us out to dry. And so when God made a promise to Abraham, why did he keep it? Because, well, first, his holiness requires and demands his faithfulness. He cannot act unfaithful. So why is God faithful? Because by His very character and nature, He is faithful. Why is He faithful to these people in this particular way? Well, verse 45 tells us this. Why did God do all of this? Why did God do all this? I I can imagine there were many nights Joseph laid his head on a rock or a flat ground surface or, or even in his palace bed and said, God, why? Verse 45 tells us that all this happened that they, the people of God, might keep His statutes and obey or observe His laws. Praise the Lord. So why did God do this? Why did He show covenant faithfulness to these people? For His glory. So that He would be made known and glorified by these people when they keep His commands, when they trust in Him, when they obey His law and worship Him. In the same way for you and I, why is God so faithful to you and I? It's in step with His character as holy and so that we would display His glory when we keep His commandments and obey His laws. Not an effort to earn His faithfulness. We've been given it freely by faith in Jesus, grafted into this family where He shows perfect faithfulness to His children. For His glory, when we obey and display His glory. 
There's a few things for us to consider here then. What has God promised you? So he promised Abraham to make him a nation that would be a blessing to all the families. If God is faithful and he keeps his promises, what has he promised you? Well, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, here's a few. I will never leave you or forsake you. All those who believe in the Son will have eternal life. The church will prevail against all evil. He causes all things to work together for your good. He will act towards you in step with His faithful, fatherly love. If God is faithful to Abraham, He will be faithful to you. His son or daughter. It also reminds us this. That this is the way some of the other psalms, specifically Psalm 119 says this. His word is sure. We don't really use the word sure in that way. We say sure as in like, why not? The word sure means perfectly confident. Will happen, no ifs, ands, buts, or questions. Which means that where the Bible calls something good, it is good. And where the Bible calls something sin, it is sin. Regardless of what the world around us seems to redefine or want to redefine as right or wrong or righteous or unrighteousness, if God is faithful, what He has said is true and will remain true. Which also means when He commands or calls us to believe something or to do something or to obey Him and says that it is for our good, that it is true. That we can take God's Word to the bank when He calls us to live holy and righteous. It is sure and good that He is faithful and His Word is true. And for those of you here this morning who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, maybe you're interested, curious, unsure about God and Jesus and all this, God's judgments are just and faithful. Which means no sin goes unpunished. By faith in Jesus, our sin is laid upon Him on the cross. Or, apart from faith in Jesus, we will suffer the punishment for our sin. And so my exhortation and encouragement to you is, if you have not believed the gospel, that today you would repent of your sin and believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. You see, Psalm 105 recounts the faithfulness of God. And it's intended to stir in us praise. It should give us comfort if we're in suffering. Hope in the future. Peace in the present. Confidence to trust and obey His Word. Because God is faithful. And God will always be faithful to His people.
I invite the worship team to come up. We're going to sing a few more songs. I don't know if this hits with you in a specific way to where uh, maybe there's something happening in your life right now that's calling into question the faithfulness of God. Uh, maybe right now you're in a space or season or time to where um, rejoicing just seems really hard to come by. Uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, wherever you find yourself right now, to come uh, in response as we sing. Uh, maybe it's to sit, uh, to just pray, or to, uh, to let them sing these things over you. Uh, I'll be in the back. would love to pray with anybody who needs someone to pray with them, to, just to talk, to listen, to grieve with. Whatever it looks like for you to respond this morning, uh, let's keep in the front of our minds this truth. God is faithful. And He will always be faithful. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise You for being steadfast in love and faithfulness. That when we are unfaithful, You are faithful. That when we are rebellious, uh, You are the complete opposite. Father, I praise you that you are holy and you are incapable of being unfaithful. Father, please help us not to uh, take that for granted, but to come to you in praise uh, because of your goodness. Father, we thank you for being faithful in generations past and help us to have faith to trust that you will be faithful to us right now in this present moment. In Jesus' name we pray.